Hello, and welcome to our ISTSS podcast episode titled Saving Lives by Treating PTSD Among Patients Who Are Suicidal. My name is Natalia Garcia. I'm a clinical psychology fellow who specializes in delivering and optimizing evidence-based treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, such as prolonged exposure, that's PE, and cognitive processing therapy, CPT. Today, we're gonna to talk about a commonly faced clinical challenge when it comes to delivering trauma-focused treatments for PTSD. When and how to treat PTSD when patients are at risk for suicide or self-harm. Essentially, the classic dilemma goes like this. My patient is suicidal because PTSD is ruining their life, but I can't treat their PTSD because they're suicidal. Thankfully, Dr. Melanie Harnett has dedicated her career to addressing this exact question how to make it possible for patients at high risk for suicide to receive the PTSD treatment that they desperately need but often can't access. She's developed DBT-PE, which essentially integrates adapted prolonged exposure into standard dialectical behavior therapy for patients suffering from PTSD who are also at high risk for suicide or self-injury. I've had the privilege of training with Dr. Harned for the last few years and now have the extra privilege of inviting her to be our guest on this podcast today. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. So let's go ahead and dive right into the first and slightly controversial question of when to treat PTSD. Melanie, can you talk to us a little bit about how to decide when patients are ready for trauma-focused treatments when they're also at risk for suicide? Absolutely. Yeah, I think at the core of this question is the very understandable desire that we have as clinicians um, to be able to predict if a patient who's at risk of suicide is actually likely to attempt or even complete suicide during a trauma-focused treatment. Um, and I have said uh, many times, I really wish there was a clear and you know, scientifically backed answer to this question, um, or that somebody would discover the biomarker for figuring out when somebody's actually um, ready to do trauma-focused treatment uh, in a safe way. However, um, you know, the bad news is there isn't actually a clear-cut answer to that question. Um, meaning very specifically is that in general, um, the science that we have at the moment does not allow us to accurately predict when someone is going to attempt suicide or kill themselves in general. So it certainly doesn't tell us how to predict that within the context of receiving treatment for PTSD specifically. Um, and um, at the same time, you know, it's also the case that the way that trauma-focused treatments are typically delivered, um, that there's no studies indicating that these treatments actually increase the risk of suicide. Um, and there are some studies actually suggesting that they might reduce the risk of both suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior. I see. So it sounds like the real dilemma here in determining when patients are ready to start PTSD treatment is essentially finding a balance between the extremes of, on the one hand, starting too soon when suicide risk still feels too high, and on the other hand, delaying PTSD treatment too long, which in the long run can actually increase suicide risk. What kind, of, yeah, what kind of clinical guidelines um, help you to sort that out? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, is there's sort of, there's potential risk in both directions. And I think generally people worry more on the side of, you know, starting too soon. Um, but I think there's also risk to be uh, recognized on that other end. 
And the good news is that, you know, the clinical guidelines that are recommended and that are typically applied in research studies of these trauma-focused treatments really appear to be quite effective in helping us to identify clients for whom it is actually safe um, to begin PTSD treatment. And at the same time, these um, guidelines are achievable by the vast majority of clients, you know, within a reasonable time frame. So they're not having to wait eternally um, to be eligible or appropriate for one of these um, trauma-focused treatments. So, you know, so the guidelines that are that are typically recommended, um, the one that I think everybody I've ever spoken with, uh, experts in lots of different trauma-focused treatments, agrees with. Um, is that we should not be doing these treatments with people who are at imminent or acute risk of suicide. You know, where this um, gets a little bit harder is that people have different definitions of what it means to be at acute risk of suicide. Um, and we're sort of, you know, to some extent left with the kind of typical clinical indicators that we look for um, when making those determinations, while also, again, not being able to know for sure. But the kind of things that we're typically looking for is that we're not going to usually be starting trauma-focused treatment with somebody who has active suicidal intent. They are planning to kill themselves um, and possibly preparing to do so, sort of gathering the means to kill themselves, whether it's medications or whatever it might be. Um, so any of these sort of, um, you know, intent planning preparation behaviors usually are viewed by people and myself included as, as suggesting somebody's at acute risk of suicide. Um, so when that's present or true for a person, you know, we're going to be looking instead to get them to a place where they are committed to staying alive, um, particularly for the period of time that we're intending to try to um, deliver this trauma-focused treatment, where they no longer have access to the means to kill themselves, um, and they're generally willing and able to follow a safety plan. Um, so just to make the point really clearly, though, um, is that acute risk of suicide is, we're not talking about people who have suicidal ideation um, and that that is the only, uh, you know, suicidal kind of uh, behavior going on. So meaning they're having thoughts and not actual behavior. So, you know, we are doing trauma-focused treatments all the time with people who have active suicidal ideation, even high levels of suicidal ideation, chronic, um, and that's not a reason to not provide this treatment um, when those other um, indicators of acute risk aren't present. So that's one thing that everybody should certainly follow. Um, another guideline um, that's quite standard across um, most every treatment is that there is a period of abstinence from suicidal behaviors that's required before you can start. So, Specifically, most treatments usually require two to three months um, where a person has not attempted suicide. Um, and most treatments also make that requirement for suicidal, um, non-suicidal self-injury as well. So two to three months free from these types of suicidal and self-harming behaviors is a pretty typical guideline that is applied. Um, again, with the idea of just sort of ensuring that somebody is not on the brink of engaging in those behaviors, but also if they have uh, managed to not engage in those behaviors for um, two to three months, um, that ideally is also suggesting that they have other coping strategies and um, skills on board that they are using and actively, um, you know, able to use in a way that is helping them uh, not engage in those behaviors. 
That makes sense. And, um, and, you know, even with these guidelines, I imagine it's still a pretty common experience for therapists and patients too, to fear that directly addressing the trauma might inadvertently make their symptoms worse or increase their suicide risk. What words of advice do you have for helping clinicians evaluate their own anxiety about doing PTSD treatment when patients are riskier? Yeah, you know, on the one hand, this is a very understandable fear, um, and I don't want to minimize it at all. It's a very common fear. And at the same time, I think clinicians can really take some comfort in the fact that when the guidelines I just described are used to determine readiness, um, that there's no data to support the idea that these treatments are going to cause patients, you know, even ones with active suicidal ideation or um, a fairly recent history of suicide attempts um, to attempt suicide or to get worse in general. Um, and of course, these decisions aren't made in isolation. So I would also very much encourage people to get consultation, ideally from colleagues or other people as you're making these decisions. But if you're following those guidelines, um, there's no reason uh, from a study, you know, research perspective to think that um, you're doing something that's excessively risky. Um, and in fact, you know, there's some reason to think that um, not providing these treatments, as you said earlier, is actually has the potential to also be risky. So we have some research showing, for example, that um, treatments like PE and CPT actually decrease suicidal ideation. Um, and in my own research, where we're, you know, combining uh, DBT with uh, prolonged exposure, you know, and using it specifically with people who are suicidal and self-injuring when we first start treating them, um, you know, we've actually found that it's riskier to not treat these high-risk patients' PTSD than it is to treat it. So specifically what I mean by that is patients um, in my studies who've received both DBT and PE together um, are about two and a half times less likely to attempt suicide than patients who receive DBT alone and don't get any type of targeted PTSD treatment. So wait a minute, you're saying that treating PTSD might actually reduce the risk of suicide rather than increase it. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, I know it's sort of counterintuitive in a way, isn't it? Because it's the opposite of what most people would have predicted, you know, myself included, when I first started doing this. And I think you know, one of the reasons why we've actually been able to have that effect um, that providing this, this treatment actually um, reduces suicidal behavior, um, is that it turns out that um, most people who are suicidal and who have PTSD um, actually want to have their PTSD treated. You know, um, that to me was sort of a pretty profound and unexpected finding when I first started doing this research. Like, if, if I had been asked to predict, I probably would have said, you know, like, I don't think the average patient who's highly suicidal is going to think the trauma-focused treatment sounds good, you know? Right, exactly. That <laughs> this is something that they're like, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. You know, if you think <laughs> about what is actually involved in these treatments, they're hard. Um, and you have to actually sit and talk about your traumas and feel lots of really painful emotions. And, you know, most people don't want to do that, you know, and people who are suicidal, perhaps I would have thought, especially. However, the opposite actually seems to be true. So in my research, about 75% or more of um, patients who are actively suicidal and self-harming, if you ask them, would you want to get um, DBT 
uh, with prolonged exposure, or would you rather have just DBT alone or prolonged exposure alone, about 75% of more of them say they want both treatments. They want a treatment that's going to address their suicide risk, which is the DBT side, and they also want a treatment that's going to address their PTSD. Um, and so when we realized that, we realized that these you know, patients actually want this treatment, which to me, frankly, is just a sign of how much they're suffering and how you know, they are willing to do whatever is needed um, to reduce their trauma-related suffering. Um, so we realized we had this kind of important carrot that we could use that might help them get control over these life-threatening behaviors more quickly. Um, so what we do um, when we're doing this combined treatment, DBT with PE, is we start at the very beginning when we're just doing DBT and we basically say to them like, hey, look, you know, we have this treatment that we could do, not the second, but when you're ready for it. Um, but we have this treatment um, and for PTSD that's really quite effective. Um, I would love to be able to do it with you. I think it would totally change your life if we could treat your PTSD. And I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not willing to do it. I will not do it until you stop trying to kill yourself. And until you stop self-harming, we also say, um, and until you show us that you're going to be able to do this treatment safely and effectively, essentially. Um, so in other words, PTSD treatment is sort of held out as a reward for stopping these life-threatening behaviors. That's um, incredible. It and is. It's really I've, shocking how well it works <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just got to stop you for a moment because this is just so different from how lots of clinicians are used to thinking about these treatments. I think most of us are used to thinking about trauma-focused treatments as something patients find aversive, like you said, um, and pretty much will avoid at all costs. Uh, but instead, you're somehow finding a way to put PTSD treatment on this pedestal or making it, like you said, this highly desirable carrot that can really change their life. Um, which makes it then something that's worth giving up life-threatening behavior to receive. And that is innovative. Yeah, I mean, and I, like I said, would not have predicted that would work, but it, it really does. Um, for most patients, it's hugely motivating to say, look, I will treat your PTSD with you and it will reduce suffering for you, but you've got to stop these things first. You know, and it doesn't work for every single patient. You know, some people obviously are ambivalent about doing trauma-focused treatment. They don't want to do it at all and all of that, in which case it's not going to work as effectively as a contingency. Um, but for most people, it does. And I think partly why we're able to do that is because we can sell them on this treatment. And that's the second reason that I think is really important, um, is that these types of trauma-focused treatments are incredibly effective for treating PTSD and helping patients to believe that they will work for them and that they will be suffering so much less if they can get through this treatment um, is often another reason that makes them wanna do it. But then if they actually do it and it has that effect, you know, that their PTSD is greatly reduced and they just um, you know, have so much less misery and ideally have more joy in their lives, um, it sort of eliminates a lot of the reasons why they wanted to be dead in the first place. You know, so if we can reduce the intensity of all these symptoms um, related to trauma, then that's what reduces their long-term risk for suicide. And um, so, you know, often I've had patients who have, you know, never particularly wanted to be alive because their trauma started very early in life. Um, and they finally get PTSD treatment that works and for the first time come out of it feeling as if they actually can have a life that feels like it's worth living.
Wow, that's incredible. And such an important reminder of why we do this work, even and especially, I think, when it can feel so hard and risky. I think there's just like you're outlining a lot to gain for these patients. And yet, unfortunately, but understandably, there's also a lot of fear around treating their PTSD, especially when suicide feels like a possibility. Now, let me ask you this. What happens when our worst fear does come true and a new patient um, becomes actively suicidal during treatment? So let's say, for instance, we did a great job selling the trauma-focused treatment. We were successful getting suicide off the table. We started treating that darn PTSD and then bam, it's back. What do you do when suicide rears its head again and you're in the middle of trauma-focused treatment? Yeah, um, well, as with many clinical decisions, I think the answer is going to be, it depends. Um, so it depends in part on you know, the client's baseline level of risk and their history. You know, for, for example, if you have a, a client who has never been suicidal or who hasn't been suicidal for a really long time, that suddenly develops intense suicidal ideation in the middle of your PTSD treatment, you know, this would likely be uh, more cause for concern than if you had, for example, a chronically suicidal client who um, was already having suicidal ideation at the beginning of treatment, who reports a slight increase perhaps in suicidal thoughts um, as the trauma-focused treatment is getting started. You know, so for patients with um, a history of repeated or chronic suicidality, you know, that that's actually you know, not unusual. Some of my uh, research data, for example, suggests that there often is this kind of temporary increase in suicidal thoughts and potentially urges at the beginning of um, trauma-focused treatment. And that's totally understandable to me, you know, given that these sort of chronically suicidal people that very often thinking about suicide has become this kind of conditioned response to experiencing a painful emotion or even thinking about their traumas. Um, and so it makes obviously good sense that in the context of starting a trauma-focused treatment where you're experiencing emotions and thinking about your trauma a lot more, um, that these types of thoughts might increase temporarily. And at the same time, if you continue with the treatment, you know, suicidal thoughts and um, urges decrease and are typically lower by the end than they were before. So you know, uh, I'd be more likely to push forward with somebody who's a chronically suicidal person who shows a slight bump up than I would with somebody who's never been suicidal before um, and suddenly starts having intense thoughts. Um, so I think that, you know, it also depends on, you know, what the behavior is exactly that's happening um, that makes us say this patient is suicidal. Like suicidal can mean a lot of different things. So if we're just talking about suicidal ideation or urges and the patient hasn't actually engaged in suicidal behavior or is not showing signs of acute risk like intent or preparation, um, then in general, we would also try to continue and keep going with the PTSD treatment while monitoring their urges and risk. Um, but if they haven't actually crossed that line from suicidal thoughts to preparing or actually attempting suicide, uh, in most cases, we're going to try to keep going. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what do you do if someone shows signs of acute suicide risk or, God forbid, actually attempts suicide during PTSD treatment? Yeah, so if somebody becomes acutely suicidal or attempts suicide, which is rare but um, can happen, you know, I would recommend stopping the trauma-focused treatment um, to address that suicide risk before ideally being able to continue. Like it's a temporary stop. Um, but, you know, how this is done exactly and what you're doing while you have stopped the trauma-focused treatment will depend a lot on what treatment you're delivering and sort of what's possible within your setting. You know, so if, we're, if you're a therapist who's providing a standalone PTSD treatment like PE or CPT, 
you know, it might not be possible to offer another treatment that's targeting their suicide risk um, if your patient in the middle of your treatment becomes unable to safely continue. Um, and so if that happens, then, you know, as a therapist, you might need to refer the patient out to another treatment that's going to focus more on stabilization and then hopefully have them come back again and resume the PTSD treatment when they're uh, able. But if you're doing more of a, you know, integrated or concurrent treatment, such as the one, you know, that I do that combines DBT with PE, then if we need to pause the PTSD part of the treatment because there's been something that's gone on that feels too high risk to continue, um, then we can always fall back on the other treatment. We can always fall back on DBT to address the suicide risk. Um, and then once we have sufficiently sort of problem solved that and the patient has shown us again that they're now able and willing to not act on the urges, then we resume the PTSD treatment. And so it's not unusual for us to kind of go in and out of PTSD treatment and sort of pause it temporarily if we need to, to address a higher priority problem that might have shown up um, and then go back and, and resume the PTSD treatment as soon as we think it's gonna be safe and effective again, which is ideally without a long delay. It's often, you know, within a few weeks. Yeah. So bottom line, it sounds like clinicians shouldn't be too concerned with continuing trauma-focused treatment if what they're dealing with is more like suicidal ideation and urges in the absence of more of the suicidal behavior you're talking about. Because like you said, it actually makes a lot of sense for ideation and urges to stick around or even temporarily increase before PTSD goes down. Um, and like you outlined, it's also a nice benefit to have the scaffolding of DBT for those instances where the suicide risk does feel more acute or problematic. Um, so I'm going to bring us back full circle to the thing we started with, which is this classical clinical dilemma a lot of us have faced. Um, this issue of my patient is suicidal because PTSD is ruining their life, but I can't treat their PTSD because they're suicidal. Um, I hope we've provided listeners today with some hope that clinicians and patients don't always have to get stuck in that predicament. And as is often actually our goal with the trauma-focused treatments we're talking about, we hope we've inspired you to face some of your own fears and maybe even challenge some of your own beliefs about treating PTSD with patients who are somewhere on this spectrum of suicidality. Although the fear of suicide is very understandable and at times critical to prioritize, we hope you don't let the fear of ending a life keep you from saving a life, or at the very least, helping a patient discover a life they experience as worth living. Thank you all so much. Uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you to Melanie for sharing your wisdom with us today. And thank you to ISTSS and everyone behind the scenes who made this podcast possible.